0: Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and just guess that you know this story and that you've heard this story before. Christian, non-Christian, if you're here at church since you were born or church just today, first Sunday for two minutes, I'm just going to assume that all of you have heard and know the story of David and Goliath. So I'm not guessing that I'm going to tell you something new today. My hope is sort of like you've seen your favorite movie a million times, right? So you've watched the same movie over and over again. You could even say the lines by heart, but you still love the movie, right? Uh, I've heard William Wallace say, they may take our lives, but they'll never take, right? And every time I hear it, I still get goosebumps and love that scene. So I'm hoping that this very familiar story for you acts that way, that you know this story, you may love this story, and that you'll hear it again in a fresh way. This is the classic underdog story. I mean, this is Old Testament Rocky. This is, I mean, this is why everyone loves this story, because the underdog uh, wins. Okay, so I, I want to tell you the story, but in order to understand it, let me give you first the backstory. So, so you got to understand the backstory so that you can get the story in a fresh way this morning. One of the beautiful things that's happened throughout this series that we've been doing throughout the Old Testament is we're beginning to see sort of how this story unfolds, right? All the way back from Adam where we started, we're seeing the threads of how these stories connect and how God was unfolding this grand story that led to Jesus. So if you were with us two weeks ago, we were studying through the book of Judges. And in particular, we looked at one hero deliverer named Samson. And there we were introduced to Israel's arch enemy, arch nemesis, the Philistines. And if you remember, Samson was always in a fight with the Philistines. And when Samson was even born, we were told, Samson is going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Begin, not finish it. He's going to start, and other f- folks are going to have to follow in that work. That the Philistines are these this thorn in Israel's side. It's this ongoing battle. It's this ongoing feud with the Philistines. They can't get rid of them. And And this problem with the Philistines is... One of the principal reasons why the people of Israel even asked for a king. So if you read through the story, what happens is God is their ruler and king. I mean, he's always been the one. From the days of Moses leading them out of Egypt, or Joshua leading them into the Promised Land, or the judges ruling during the time of Cain, and God's always been over them all. But the Philistines are such a nagging nuisance to them that they can't help but wish, we wish we had somebody like a a human being we could see on a throne who would ride out on a chariot in front of us and lead us in battle against the Philistines. We need somebody to fight the Philistines. And so as as you keep reading the story, what you find is because they keep crying out for a king, God finally gives in, and they actually anoint and appoint this man named Saul. And all the people are excited. Now, Samuel, the prophet who wrote the book that we're reading right now, Uh, warns them, this is not going to go good for you. I mean, you're not going to replace God as king with a man and think that that's going to go well for you. This is not going to turn out well. But they're excited because Saul is tall and, and dignified and handsome, and he looks like a king. In fact, the text even tells us he's head and shoulders above everyone else. So he's prominent and he's dignified. He's everything you would want someone to look like in a king. So here's Saul. But just like they had been warned, it doesn't go well. So that by the time you get to 1 Samuel 16, which is the chapter right before the one Brett read for us and that we're looking at this morning, here's what happens. In 1 Samuel 16, we find out that Saul has rejected God, and so God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. And in chapter 16, what happens is God says, I'm going to anoint and appoint a new king. So he tells Samuel, you're to go down to Bethlehem, to the family of the Ephrathites, and there a son of Jesse will be king. Now again, if you've been tracking with us in this series, those names sound familiar because we've heard Bethlehem and Ephrathite and Jesse. We heard it last week because we read the story of Ruth and Naomi and, and the clan from Bethlehem, and we read of Ruth's son, Obed, and Obed's son, Jesse. So we're in Ruth's house. Her grandson is now an old man. And Samuel goes to his house. And God promises that one of Jesse's eight kids is going to be king. So this father, Jesse, now old, parades his sons in front of Samuel. And the first one that comes is tall and dignified. And he's Saul-like, head and shoulders. He looks like a king. And Samuel knows this is the one. And God conveys this message. I don't see what you see. I don't look at the outside. I look past to the heart, and he passes over him and passes over the next one and over the next one and over the next one to the point that the dad forgets he's got more kids, right? He says, oh, yes, yes, there's one more, the runt of the litter, the the youngest one. He's out feeding sheep, and they wait for David to come. And, of course, Samuel pours oil on David's head, and he is anointed king. So it's 1 Samuel 16, the one right before our story closes with, there's a new king. Now he's not on the throne yet. There's going to be a long season before he wears the crown or sits on the throne, but there's a new king. And if you read 1 Samuel, here's what happens. As soon as Saul, the first king, is anointed, uh, he's filled with the spirit. And so guess what happens when David is anointed? He's filled with the spirit. And as soon as this chosen Anointed, spirit-filled king is called king of Israel with Saul. The first thing you read that he does is he fights God's enemies. So guess what you're gonna find when you've got a new spirit-filled chosen anointed king, except that he's gonna fight an enemy. This is this is first Samuel's way of letting you know he really is the new king. Just like before, except there's a new guy in town. So you almost come to the end of 1 Samuel 16 expecting a showdown, and that's exactly what you get. So here's how chapter 17 begins. First Samuel 17, if you've got a Bible, we're just going to be sitting in that chapter all morning, and it'll be on the screen behind me. But this is verses 1 and 2 of how this fight begins. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Damon And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the Valley of Elah, And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. With a valley between them. So here's how the story sets up. Israel and the Philistines are ready to fight. They're always fighting. And so now they're on two different mountain sides. With a deep valley in between them. And so they're opposed to one another. Ready for a fight. And we read even that this is all taking place in Judah. Meaning that the Philistines have actually invaded into Israeli land. This is Israelite territory, or this is home field advantage. We're fighting on our turf here, right? So this is now home field advantage, and yet they're scared to death, right? It's almost like if the eagles have to play the cowboys, it's bad enough you got to play the cowboys. You hate the cowboys. But now you're playing at Lincoln Financial Field, and they're too scared to even come out of the locker room. We've got home field advantage, and yet they're in the tunnel. They won't even step out onto the field. You, you hate the cowboys. That's bad enough. Now you're, you're afraid to play them even. Right? That, that's sort of what this is like. And, and for those of you who are keeping track, by the way, this is the second week in a row that I have mocked Dallas, uh, which is just my way of loving my city and serving our city, right? So you, you hate the Philistines. Now they're on your turf. And yet you are scared to death to fight them. And we're going to find out why they are. Look at verse 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javel of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. All right, that's, that's a lot of description and detail. And, and it's almost as if the text is giving you all this detail as if it, it, it's almost like a boxing scene, right? You're going to have to forgive all the sports metaphors this week, but this is a good fight, right? So it's almost as if the text is like a a ring announcer, a boxing announcer at center stage. The mic has dropped from the ceiling. The spotlight's on him, and he's just getting you ready for the fight. So he's announcing to you, and on this side, at around 9 feet tall, weighing 350 pounds, the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, Goliath, of Gath, right? That's what the text is doing. The text is setting you up for. Do you see this massive specimen of a man? I mean, you get detail here. He's six cubits and a span, and so commentators tell us that's about nine feet or over nine feet tall, right? I, I googled our our tallest history that we have. The tallest man in history is is a guy named Robert Waldo at eight feet eleven inches. You should google it. Because you see how towering he is. I mean, twice the size of people. Except they didn't have a gym back then. So he's this lanky, skinny little fellow. But imagine a nine-foot warrior Goliath of a man. And then y- you can't help but read this giant and not not see that, look, if you're going to look at Goliath, you've got to start up there. You're going to have to look up. It's like you can't even see the sun because he's hiding it. And so you get this description of this man from head to toe. He's got a helmet of bronze on his head. He's wearing 126 pounds of armor on his body. He's got bronze covering his legs. And that's all without even mentioning that he is strapped with weapons. He's got a javelin hung between his shoulders. He's got a spear and a sword. And this guy is so armed, so strapped, that he's got to get an assistant to now carry his shield. So this, this other guy's job is just to walk around with his shield because this guy is strapped with armor. I mean, he is, and what the text is doing is, do you see him? I mean, he's, he's a tank. He's, he's invincible. He's undefeatable. And the worst is he knows it. Because listen to what comes out of his mouth. This is the origin of trash talking. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Right? This is the mother of all trash talking. This is where it starts. And this giant comes out and he's standing on his side of the valley and he shouts across the valley. And he's basically saying, look, why are you all lined up for battle if no one's ever going to come out and fight me? You're Saul's servants. I'm Philistine. What are we waiting for? So choose somebody. And he basically throws down the gauntlet and he says, listen, choose anybody in your entire stinking country. I'll fight anyone in your whole country. Let him come down. And he, and he issues the challenge. If he beats me, we'll be your servants. But if I beat him, and he might as well say, and when I beat him, you will be our slaves. And he taunts them and curses them and mocks them and issues this challenge. And verse 16 is going to tell us, He does it every morning and every evening for 40 days. So these guys have to line up and hear this filth, this trash, this garbage, this mocking 80 times. And no one can do anything. In fact, verse 11 tells us, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, hear that again, of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In fact, that's the text way of saying, wait, do you remember? Do you remember that they wanted a king so that they'd finally have someone to fight the Philistines? That's why we appointed this guy. So so it's almost the text way of saying, look, if there was anyone in Israel that's supposed to step up to this challenge, it's Saul because that's why they appointed him. They finally needed someone to fight the Philistines and he was head and shoulders above everyone else. So tall Saul is the only guy we've got. That's the hope that the guy, head and shoulders above everyone else, the champion of Israel, the one we appointed as king to f- precisely do this, fight the Philistines for us. And yet, tall Saul is paralyzed with fear and hiding out in his tent, and he's dismayed and greatly afraid. So that by the time you get to the end of verse 11, you're almost asking, if tall Saul's not going to do it, what what hope is there left in Israel? And then it's like the text is the ring side announcer again going, and now on this side is the challenger. Verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man, that's Jesse, was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest the three eldest followed Saul but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening so now the the sort of camera pans and the ringside announcer is ready to say and on this side you've got the challenger and as he's talking man you just get more and more depressed Because you just heard how he stacked this side and how he described Goliath. And you're hoping if there's going to be a challenger, there's something to say here. And yet what you hear is, okay, this guy is from Bethlehem. He's a part-time shepherd, part-time delivery boy. He's from a family of eight. And, oh, by the way, he's literally the youngest of them all, the runt of the litter. He's got three older brothers who are in the army. But he's too young to be in the army. And so in other places of scripture we read, you had to be 20 years old to get into the army. And so that means David is less than 20. He's a kid, a teenager at best. And so now you're you're hoping for some kind of good information, but with all the details about David, all the narrator's trying to get you to see is this is the most unlikely challenger there's going to be. I mean, this is the last person you'd imagine. It's as if the ringside announcer has described for you Goliath and then says, and now the challenger... At five foot three inches, weighing 87 and a half pounds, David of Bethlehem. Right? And you, you, you read that and you go, this is a landslide of a fight. This is not going to go well. In fact, the only reason shepherd boy David shows up to the fight that day is because dad had sent him on an errand. Dad had told him, listen, there's some real men fighting, and so I need you to bring some bread and cheese to them. And that's the only reason he even shows up that day. And so verse 20 to 23, he's going to tell us. He gets up in the morning. He gives the delivery to these men. And then it just so happens that while he's there, it's the time when they get out for battle again. And Goliath comes out again and says what he said for 40 days already. And, And it's nothing new, right? Israel's heard this 80 times already. Except this time there's a set of fresh ears on the field. Right? In fact, listen to that, verse 23. As he talked with them, that's David with the people of Israel, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And then you get this little detail, and David heard him, right? They had heard it 80 times before, this was nothing new, but now, today, on this time, there was a fresh set of ears, David heard him. And as you keep reading the story what you begin to see is there's this difference in perspective between how David sees and hears the Philistine and how Israel sees and hears the Philistine they just they they see the same thing they're hearing the same thing but they interpret the event very differently if you read 24 to 27 Israel's looking and they begin telling David what's happening and they describe him as There's this invincible foe of a man. He's this incredible warrior. None of us can fight him. They even tell him, look, the king's offered an incredible incentive. The king's promised his daughter's hand in marriage, riches galore, tax-free living for your family for the rest of your life, and still nobody's up for this. None of us can go up against him. But David hears and sees the whole thing very differently. Listen to what he says in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Where all the soldiers are offering resignation to this is just the way it is, David is full of indignation. He's not, he he can't stomach this. And the reason is, he doesn't just hear this as trash-talking against Israel. He sees this as trash-talking God. And zeal consumes him. That what this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, this worshiper of false and dead gods that don't exist is doing, is mocking the living God and his armies. This is not just, you're mocking us, and so uh, he stirs up a little bit of patriotism. This is, you are worshiping dead gods that don't exist, and you have the audacity to blaspheme the living God. You have gods that don't exist, they're dead, and yet you think you're going to speak out against the living God and his people. David's principal concern is for the name and fame and glory and reputation of God and for the well-being of his people. In fact, when you think of that, this is what makes him so heroic, right? Like, we read Samson's story. Remember the first guy that fought the Philistines. And Samson's entire fight with the Philistines was about Samson. The Philistines had wronged Samson, so Samson was ticked at the Philistines. And the Philistines had cheated Samson, so Samson was going to get back at the Philistines. And the Philistines had plucked out Samson's eyes, so Samson was going to get revenge at the Philistines. But here David, his principal concern is this godless Philistine has brought reproach upon the Lord and upon the armies of the living God. How is it that God's people are going to stand here and allow his name to be dragged in the mud by a man who worships dead gods that don't exist? This is his zeal. And when word gets to Saul that there's a new set of ears and that someone's talking different than all the other men for these 40 days, that there's somebody actually saying something needs to be done, Saul immediately sends for him. So that's verse 31. Listen to this. When the words that David spoke were heard, And they repeated them before Saul he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there was a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and killed him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, Go, and the Lord be with you. So here's what happens. He calls him into the tent. And he says, listen, nobody else needs to be afraid. No one's heart needs to sink anymore. I'll go and fight this man. And Saul brings up the obvious. Listen, you're a kid. He eats kids. I mean, th- this guy has been a warrior since he was a kid. Uh, how on earth do you think you're going to fight him? And so David sort of lists his resume, and he says, listen, I, I've fought lions and bears. I've been a shepherd, and his point is this. The Lord has delivered me from dumb beasts before, and that's all he is. This dumb beast is going to fall like all the other dumb beasts that God has delivered me from. He saved me from the paw, and it's the same word, the paw of the lion, the paw of the, of the bear, and it's the same word, and the paw of Goliath. That's what God's going to do. He's gotten me through dumb beasts before. That's what's going to happen to this one. And maybe just because he has no better option. If he had a better option, Saul would have went with it. He's got no better options. So he says, go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 38 you read that Saul tries to suit him up in some armor. It's not customized for him. It's it's too big. It doesn't fit. He's not used to it. So he doesn't wear any of it. And then verse 40 you get this great verse. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, maybe you've heard it enough that you've lost the sort of wonder of that simple detail. But the narrative is brilliant. Like, what a contrast. Do you see the two that just showed up on the field? I mean, here is Goliath of Gath, nine feet tall, and he is strapped. I mean, helmet on his head, 126 pounds of armor, bronze on his legs, javelin, spear, sword, an extra guy just to hold his shield. And David's got a stick and stones, hoping it'll break some bones. And and that's really what he's going with. I mean, you you could not have more of a contrast in the text. And then listen, verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I love that verse. It's almost like Goliath can't even see him from back there. He's got to go real close to even see little David. And when he finally sees him, he sees what does he see he sees a little pretty boy that's what he says he, uh, this little young boy is ruddy and handsome in appearance in fact this is the t- second time samuel talks about how pretty david is in first samuel 16 it says david was had beautiful eyes and was handsome in appearance and it's almost like at least for me i'm reading this and i'm going if your national security is online your 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 freedom as a people is lo- online you're hoping for like some ugly brute. That's what I would hope for. Some tattooed guy with missing teeth, somebody with a chance. The last guy you want is somebody with beautiful eyes, right? This beautiful eyed, pretty boy David shows up and just seeing him makes Goliath even more angry. It's as he's hes appalled at it. He disdains him. He's literally thinking, look, your entire country is on the line and you sent this pretty boy kid out with a stick and some stones I mean that enrages him even more so verse 43 says and the Philistine said to David am I a dog that you came to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods and the Philistine said to David come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field for 80 taunts he's never got anyone to say anything back and finally in verse 45 Israel speaks back through the mouth of David. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Goliath hurls down these curses, calling on these dead gods that don't exist, and he threatens them. and finally, after 40 days, after 80 times of no one ever saying anything, David finally speaks back to this giant and here's what he says he says listen you're coming here with sword and spear and javelin and shield but you're coming here alone it's almost as if he reverses this thing on Goliath and he says wait 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 i just want to get this straight you're coming up against the living god and all you brought was a sword and a spear and a shield In fact, from David's eyes, he's saying, this is not going to be a fair fight. You're coming up against the living God and the best you thought to bring was a sword and a shield and a javelin and a spear? You don't get it, brother. You're here alone. I'm coming to you in the name of the living God. And that's not just religious speak. It's not like he's just saying some kind of pious talk. He, to his core, believes this is not going to be fair. You just, do you see what's happening here? You're here alone against the living God with some bronze on. This is not going to go well for you, Goliath. And in fact, he says, listen, when I'm done with you, and he says it's not just going to be you, it's going to be everybody, all the Philistines. When we're done with you, the jackals are going to eat your flesh and whatever's left, the birds of the air are going to pick at. That's good trash talk, by the way. I, I'm gonna say that at the next Turkey Bowl, because uh, it's gonna be biblical. I'm gonna say, "Listen, when we're done with you, jackals are gonna eat you, and vultures are gonna pick at what's left." That's gonna be my opening line, right? And 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 so he goes, and now you know the rest. And it's you, you know it, but it's great. So hear it, 48 through 50. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. I mean, that, that's amazing, right? He he hurls this thing. It crushes the head of this enemy crushes the skull of this enemy and then what you keep reading is the philistines see that their champion is dead and they flee and israel now because they have won through david go and rout the philistines Uh, right they're not fighting for victory now they're fighting from victory you got to notice that right They don't have to fight anymore because their champion won the battle for them. That was the wager. And now, because their champion has cut off the head of the enemy and crushed his skull, his people gain a victory, and now they can fight from freedom rather than even for freedom. They can fight from victory rather than fighting for their victory. And by the end, you go, what a rout, and what a story. Now, I want to say one thing, and then we'll be done. What do you take away from some of that? What do you you take away from some of that? What are we to learn from the story? How we tend to read this, and it's not entirely wrong, it's just how we sometimes only read this, is we go, okay, you got the story, now how does it apply to my life? Well, I gotta put myself in the story, so who am I? I'm David. And... There's Goliaths in my life, and the Goliaths have many names. It can be debt, it can be a hard marriage, it can be addiction, it can be sin, it can be suffering, it can be sickness. Some circumstance in my life that stands on the horizon of my life like a tall giant, and what I'm supposed to learn from this story is... If I have enough faith and courage, then I can grab the stones, whatever they may be, in my life, and I can bring down this giant. That's not entirely wrong. So don't hear me mock that. Even if my tone betrays that, that's not the point. That's that's part of it. Is David's faith to be commended? Absolutely. Is his courage to be emulated? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is his perspective on this whole thing to be adopted. Absolutely, right? David sees what no one else sees. Did you notice that? They count this whole equation without God. David can't help but see God in it. And so much of this walk of faith is seeing things from the perspective of God. Don't miss that for a second. So much of our walk of faith is is seeing things from a perspective where God is a part of the equation. Because for them, they can't help but see anything but a giant. And for David, he can't help but see anything but God in the midst of all that, right? It, it's like one preacher said, look, if you're on the ground and you're looking at Shaq, he's huge, blinds the sun, he covers everything. But if you're at the top of the Comcast Center, then you, you'd, you'd need binoculars to find Shaq. And and that's the some of the point, right? They, David's got this perspective that You haven't factored the living God into this whole thing. And so, is is David's faith to be emulated and imitated and his courage to be emulated and imitated, his perspective to be emulated and imitated, his zeal for God and concern for God's people to be emulated and imitated? Yes to all of that. Yes to all of it. But if that's all we see or the only thing we see, we miss something. You know why? How would an Israelite have read this story? Because remember, Israel's the one that this story was about, and they're the ones who first read the story. How would they have read it? If they're reading the story, they're not trying hard to figure out who they are in the story. They're already in the story. They're the Israelites. And so if they're reading the story, they go, you know who we were? We were the cowards standing on the side who were scared to death to step onto the field, and there was no incentive the king could ever offer that would get us to face the giant we were scared to death we could not win this battle we could not fight there was no hope for us we were going to be done dead and slaves until god provided a hero god provided a hero to fight a fight we couldn't fight to win a battle we couldn't win to destroy a giant and an enemy we couldn't destroy for ourselves and oh what an unlikely hero he was He was small and frail and weak and you were sure it was death. And he walked down into the valley of death and you were sure it was done. But then this unlikeliest of hero emerges from the valley of death victorious, having crushed the head of the enemy and there having secured for all of God's people victory. Do you notice that? The people didn't fight and win this battle on their own, but there was a substitute, another in their place, and through his victory, they were granted victory. Because he won, they won, and they fought not for freedom or victory. They fought from freedom and from victory. Because he won, they won. Because he was a hero, they were victorious. And this entire army shares in his imputed victory for them. That's what Israel would have seen. Israel would have said, thank God for sending us a hero, for sending us a savior when we could not fight this thing on our own. Thank God. In fact, if you read the next chapter, 1 Samuel 18, they are so proud and pleased of David, they literally write songs about him and to him and sing to him. They sing of the savior David. Think of that. They They sing of the Savior David. They write songs and sing to what a great Savior David is and what a great Savior he is. The Spirit-anointed, chosen, King of Israel with God's own heart, full of faith, who fought the enemy and defeated the giant and secured for God's people a great victory, who slept with his best friend's wife and got her pregnant and then killed him. Oh yeah, there's that. Right? Cuz cuz we don't just read one part of the story, we read the whole story and you go, this guy was so awesome. And yet he wasn't enough. It's like the text goes bending backwards to show you as great as they were, they were just shadows. Because what Israel needed was a better David, a better savior. And it wasn't going to be David, the son of Bethlehem. It was going to be David's son from Bethlehem. Many, many, many years later. Another son from Bethlehem who would grow up. And oh, what a weak savior he looked like. In fact, when they hung him to the cross, everyone was sure it was defeat. His enemies taunted and mocked him. And yet he went through the valley of death and emerged victorious, crushing the head of the enemy and securing for all of God's people who were powerless victory so that now through Jesus Christ we don't fight for victory we fight from victory we battle an enemy whose head has already been cut off and he may thrash around for a little while but he is a defeated foe we don't have to defeat him he has been defeated for us by the better David Jesus Christ and he is our savior and he has imputed to us cowards though we may be, victory. So that you go, you know the hero of this story is the son of David, who was better than David. So it gives hope for cowards like me and you who face Goliaths of many kinds to say, when I couldn't fight this thing, there's one who has already fought the principal enemy for me, crushed his head in, cut off his head, so that now we live from victory. And his victory has been given to us, and he's our hero, and we sing to him and worship him, so that now it's about him that we make songs, and we sing aloud of this great Savior, the better David, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.